Welcome to the Thoughts from the Couch podcast. I am your host, Justine Carino, licensed mental health counselor. I am here to lean into conversations about relationships, resilience, and recovery from life's challenges in order to support you on your journey to finding clarity in what you want for your future. We will talk about the things that no one else really wants to talk about in order to help you heal from past wounds and create a life that truly fulfills you. Please note, this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. So my guest today is Dana Coretta Stein, a licensed mental health counselor with a group private practice in Scarsdale, New York. Dana and I met a little over a year and a half ago because I was just starting my private practice and we had some mutual colleagues in common. And I really wanted to pick her brain on how to build a successful practice. And since then, she has become such a helpful resource and now someone I can really call a friend. So yeah, thank you for joining us, Dina. I mean, it's always just such a pleasure to just chat with you, like happy to hang out with you for a little while, especially during today's times. (laughs) So we're recording this right now during the whole COVID-19 saga. Yes. So, you know, pandemic 2020. Exactly. (laughs) Just trying to survive and maintain our roles as therapists Mm -hmm. um, for our clients and see everyone virtually. So Dana, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do in your career? Yeah, absolutely. So I myself am a licensed mental health counselor, and I'm the owner of Peaceful Living Mental Health Counseling, which is a counseling center in Scarsdale, New York. So um, in addition to just running the practice, which I love, I love like the business aspect. Um, I'm also, I treat clients as well. And my specialty is trauma. So everything that I do in my work with clients is through the trauma-informed care lens. So Mm -hmm. I focus more on what happened to somebody, not what's wrong with somebody, so to speak. Uh, If we were in video, you would see like my air quotes going up. Um, but, But instead of looking, you know, and just working on symptoms, I kind of look at the experiences that have contributed to those symptoms and then treating the trauma. Um, So it's been a really effective way to have uh, individuals recover. I'm certified in EMDR therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Um, It's just the best treatment for trauma. Um, I use it successfully with so many clients. Um, So yeah, that's that's a little bit about me and what I do in my practice. Thank you. And I think like it's important to note for people listening, not all therapists do the same thing. You know what I mean? We think like, oh, you're a therapist. You must be able to treat and help everything, which is really not the case. Everyone starts to develop their own um, specialty and then get experience and training in those areas of expertise. And trauma is not one of the areas I specialize in. So if I ever have a client that's been through a traumatic event, I would definitely send them over to Dana. Thank you. Um, so thank you. I wanted to have you on given your training and experience and expertise with trauma, because today's topic is about how people can recover from sexual assault and the trauma that comes with it. Yeah. And this is a topic that I don't think gets enough conversation going on around it. Right. And the research says that about like one in five women are raped at some point in their lives. Yeah. The numbers are really staggering. And as you're saying, like when we were chatting before, it's that's even, that's not taking into account the people who don't report. Exactly. So it could be even more than that. Exactly. And also I'm thinking, okay, like 
rape is one level of sexual assault, but there's so many different aspects and levels to what sexual assault can look like for people. Sure. Um, and that I haven't really seen stats on. So it affects so many people at some point in their lives. So yeah. it's a sticky, it's a sticky topic that a lot of people can relate to. Right. So and I love that you're, in. yeah, I love that you're having the conversation about it, that you want to talk about it because as you know, healing comes from talking about things. So starting the conversation is so important. Definitely. And, you know, my work with like 20 somethings and teens and college students, this comes up a lot in my mm-hmm. sessions. Um, and I figured lot, a lot more people than the people I'm seeing need to hear a little bit about this. So I definitely wanted you on here to share some of your knowledge about how to recover from this. Sure. So Dana, can you tell me, is this topic something you come across or see in your private practice? Just to give you the short answer of that, yes, is something that individuals call me specifically for. It's something I see a lot. Sometimes it's, it's interesting. I have clients who come in who, you know, don't say that's the reason they're coming in. And then through the history taking that comes out. Um, and that's really, again, looking at the trauma informed care lens of, oh, I have this anxiety. Okay. Well, when was the first time you felt that? And then it comes up to this time. So yeah, it comes up a lot. Interesting. So it's not necessarily what they're calling you for, but there's other times as you're doing a history, you find out that there's a history of sexual assault for them. Interesting. So is there a typical age range of people that are talking about this topic with you or does it vary? It actually, it really varies. Um, in terms of sexual assault, I, you know, I've treated clients who are teenagers um, mm-hmm. and I've treated clients who are in their eighties. So it really wow. runs the spectrum of, you know, one, when someone's willing to talk about it, uh, when they're ready to talk about it, um, sometimes individuals have been through therapy countless times in their lives, but it was never, you know, for this specifically. And then they're finally ready to talk about it later on in life. Um, so there's really, there's such a wide range of, uh, individuals coming to talk about this specific topic of sexual assault. Interesting. And you said like, even like an 80 year old has talked yeah. about it. I'm so curious, was that the person or, you know, when you're thinking of treating older adults, mm. Do they really reveal this for the first time or they just reflect back and it comes up in conversation or is it something they've held on to this whole time? You know, everyone's different. Um, For some people, it's something they've never talked about and they've never wanted to bring it up before. um, And they just feel like at this point in their life, they need to work on it and heal because they're just tired of dealing with it. Wow. Um, For some people, they've talked about it before, but there's a very big difference between talking and healing. Um, Mm. and that's where EMDR can be really effective because we can know something cognitively. We can talk about something cognitively, but it's not until we let ourselves feel the feelings and the physical sensations associated with the trauma that we can actually reprocess it. So there's a really big difference in talking versus getting treatment and therapy for it. Got it. And I definitely want to ask you some more questions before we wrap up this episode about EMDR and get some people to have some clarification on what that looks like. So we'll definitely come back to that. Who are people typically, you know, that you've seen getting sexually assaulted by? Are they friends? Are they boyfriends? Are they strangers? Is it a variety? So 
the the majority of clients that I have have treated um, is sadly, and it pains me to say this, but it's it's real and it's an experience. It's been someone they know. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's family incest that can come up a lot. Wow. Um, you know, which is really sad, but it happens way more often than we all talk about. Exactly. Um, you know, I have had individual cases as well of you know a one time someone being assaulted by someone they didn't know. Um, but a lot of times that can leave a lasting effect on a person is when it's someone they knew, whether they were groomed as a child or whether, um, it was, you know, a father or, you know, an uncle it's sometimes it's, it's in closer in the circle than you think. And that's like the harsh reality of this yeah. is the fact yeah. that like it typically isn't a stranger. It's someone they know right within right. the family Which, or a friend or right. whatever. It makes it more, um, more of a complex trauma rather than like a, a single incident PTSD, because then there's what's what I call the trauma after the trauma. So it's not just what happened to me or what happened to me several times. It's maybe how the family dealt with it, how others mm-hmm. in the family responded to it or didn't respond to it. Um, so yeah. there's so many layers that can really impact a person's ability to recover from it. And I could only imagine, like, let's say, little girls coming to their mom or dad and was like uncle so-and-so or brother so-and-so or whomever, right. you know, did this to me, how shocking right. it must be for those parents too. Yeah. So it probably at the first like hearing of this event is such denial and then reacting yeah. with that denial, which can create more trauma for the person or the little girl revealing this. Right. Right. And it can, that's, it's so true. And the biggest thing that I think we focus on too in sessions is, you know, obviously as if, if it happens to you as a child and you disclose to a parent, parents are human too. So we don't want to focus right. on blaming the parent because that can yeah. harbor a lot of anger and a lot of um, resentment that can make it difficult to heal. But healing yeah. also comes from getting curious about, you know, the response of the person we disclose to. Because more often than not, something has happened to maybe our parents or the person that we told, which is why they responded or reacted in the way that they did. Maybe right. they, maybe they were actually assaulted and they've never talked about it. So then someone disclosing to them, it brought up all those old feelings and they shut down. So yes. it's bringing a curious, mindful attention to those reactions and responses because blaming it just, it can, yeah, it keeps us in anger, which doesn't help. Definitely. And I'm glad you brought up like the generational impact of this because I focus a lot on family systems and things that are passed down from our families of origin and how when something happens to a parent, yeah, if something's happened in a parent's life and they're triggered by what's happening in their child's life, Mm -hmm. it's it's an interesting recipe on how to handle a situation. So I'm glad you brought that up for sure. A hundred percent. Yeah. So I'm curious, what do you think people should do in order to help themselves recover from any type of sexual assault or sexual trauma that they've experienced in their lives? I think it's important for each person who, who this, there's no one specific recipe for recovery. Everybody is different in terms of interventions that work best for them. So the, my, my suggestion is to always Find what works for you. Mm-hmm. So talking about it definitely helps. And it doesn't have to be with a therapist. For some people, it's just, you know, 
they don't like it. And that's perfectly okay. I'm not going to sit here and push therapy on every single person. Right. Um, and for some people, maybe EMDR is not the right fit for them. It doesn't, mm-hmm. there's tons of other trauma therapies that can also help. Um, but it's really, it's about learning what helps bring you calm, what helps bring you peace, what helps you learn. Because when we do, when you do have PTSD, it's really the, the trauma has been stored incorrectly in your brain. So you need to relearn it so that it can be stored adaptively. So it's, it's, yeah, it's finding whatever helps you relearn it. So you're no longer activated by it. So you can move on with your life and it'll just become a memory rather than a reliving. So is that why a lot of therapists have their clients tell the stories of the trauma numerous times to help them process it and place it in their brains? Is that part of it? Yes, that's more, um, you know, telling the story over and over. That's more, I think, um, why am I blanking? Not cognitive processing therapy. There's another one that okay. you repeat it over and over. I'm totally blanking on it right now. Is it like exposure? I'm guessing it's like an exposure it's, type yes, of therapy. Yeah, it's definitely like an exposure therapy. So there's, there's not issues with that, but it, it works for a specific type of client. Got um, it. So for somebody who has more complex trauma, mm-hmm. exposure therapy can actually make it worse. Because yeah, there might, with complex trauma, there's usually some level of dissociation going on, meaning you either feel disconnected from the memory in some way, whether depersonalization or derealization. And you can start to develop phobias to certain levels of emotions, like a a phobia to anger, a phobia to anxiety. So when you expose somebody to that memory, you actually grow the phobia and make it harder and harder to treat. So uh, that's why I love EMDR therapy specifically, because there's so many stabilization exercises that are put in place before we go to the telling the story. So to make sure that that doesn't happen. I think that is also what makes people resistant to Mm -hmm. going to therapy because they're afraid of that retelling. Like they're like, I don't want to have to repeat this over and over again. And they start to fear that. Right. Right. And sometimes like, you know, telling the story over and over again can be helpful, especially in the beginning. Um, If it's a trauma that's just happened, um, that can actually be helpful to help process it. But um, it's also good to do it in in a place that's safe and comfortable so that you can actually, you want to connect. You want to connect the images associated with the trauma, the all the sensations, sight, smell, taste, touch, right? Because trauma is all yeah. it's a sensory experience. And we want to connect the emotions and the body reactions so that we can digest it and relearn it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. So there's so many different ways to do that. Yeah, that's helpful. And we hear this a lot that people are resistant to report sexual assault to authorities. And I've heard stories about how long it has taken between the time a college student has reported a sexual assault on campus to the time anything has been changed and what a court case is like. It just sounds like that process is traumatizing. Do yeah, you think absolutely. that's why people are resistant to report or are there other reasons that hold people back? I definitely think that's a huge part of it um, because it, the whole court process can, first of all, there's a lot of um, speculation how a survivor is treated. Um, Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're, they're questioned and they act like they don't believe them. And then the court case can be extremely traumatizing. You know, if you have to get on the stand and face your accuser, that can be activating without the right 
therapy to get you ready for that. Um, so yeah, it can be really, really help, like hurtful, not helpful. Yeah. And I'm guessing there's also a lot of like personal shame and guilt yeah. involved. I'm sure you hear a lot about that in your conversations about the, the victim on um, saying like right. they're too ashamed to even tell like a best friend about what happened. They like bury this secret with them. Um, does shame come up a lot in your sessions? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's such a theme of responsibility when I work with survivors of sexual assault because, and this is where um, EMDR can be helpful, but what happens is we get stuck on this negative maladaptive belief that I, I could have done something differently yes. or I somehow caused it. And this element of responsibility, which keeps us feeling shameful and that can be um, very difficult without getting the right treatment to, you know, basically learn that there was, you didn't cause this. Right. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, a survivor looks at it that way subconsciously because it was out of their control, right? You can't control whether or not someone's going to assault you sexually. Right. But then because we feel so out of control, we try to almost narrate it so we had more control in the moment. Right. right. You kind of say like, if I had only done this, if I had only done that, and that gives the survivor a sense of control over the circumstance because Definitely. being completely out of control is so frightening and uncomfortable. And that's mm -hmm. what a lot of the trauma is about, I'm sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, Peter Levine, who's the founder of Somatic Experiencing Therapy, it's, his research is fascinating. And he really, um, the reasons why human beings really develop PTSD when, as compared to animals is because we attach a narrative to an experience oh, and yeah. that can really, that can traumatize us. Whereas, you know, his whole thing is about like an Impala getting chased by a lion and mm -hmm. what they do is they, you know, what happens in a lot of individuals, not everybody, but dissociation can occur, which is the freeze response. So with a trauma, you get fight, flight, or freeze. So an Impala, yeah. let's say it freezes, it's like a way of playing dead. And then if they can break free from the lion they do this thing where they shake and they completely discharge all of that energy and run off and they're fine. Human they beings don't do out. that. They literally shake out. So trauma can really be stored energy that hasn't been released. That's what dissociation is. So mm. it's what human beings do. Instead of shaking it off, we create a narrative. And that yeah. narrative can keep us stuck in a negative thought and go like, oh, well, I could have done this. We try to apply logic to something that isn't logical. Yes. And that's where we get stuck. And that's where we get stuck in our bodies too. Yes, 100%. And I've heard, you know, some people talk about when they try to re-engage sexually like when they want to with a new partner, right. a lot of these feelings get triggered again yep. and their body like responds in this freeze moment where right. they aren't unable, they, they have the desire, they want to engage sexually, but they right. can't because of this. Right. Yeah. And that's more of the, um, the inability to, to realize that the trauma, what happened to you when you were assaulted is over mm. because what PTSD is as a definition of a diagnosis is it is a lack of time orientation. So basically a part of us, whether conscious or subconscious does not realize that the trauma is over and that you're safe now. So right. like when our partner touches us, 
it triggers that memory in our mind, which is processed incorrectly, it's stored incorrectly in the brain. And we feel as if it's happening all over again. We're reliving. So we're unable to then relax so we can be intimate with our partners. Interesting. You're good. You're good at this. You know what you're doing. Well, it's my specialty. Like you said, we all have specialties and there's so many things I'm not good at. I will be the first to admit that I'm not good at so many things. But when it comes to PTSD in the brain, that that's my shtick. (laughs) You know what you're talking about. And, you know, I'm just thinking of so many young women who like want healthy relationships and they're looking for healthy relationships and they have this past of, you know, some kind of sexual trauma and they're, they're excited about this person they're with. They're excited about their partner. Mm -hmm. They've forgotten about what's happened. They've put it behind until they start to engage sexually again. Then these feelings tend to get triggered and they're stuck of like, why now? And they might not realize exactly what you're talking about. Right. Yeah. If you look at a functional MRI of a PTSD brain, you could see all these areas of overactivation, which is showing that the the memory is not, when you remember something that has happened in the past, your hippocampus lights up like in the back of your head. Um, For a trauma survivor, it's all of like the, the frontal lobe, the amygdala, limbic system, all that lights up. So it's showing that it's, it's not a stored memory. It's a reliving. Interesting. So that's what really brings the trauma back into the moment for people. Right. They relive it. Right. And a, a trigger may not just be like you were saying before, like a sexual touch. It could be a smell. It could be a sound. Yeah. It could be anything that happened during the traumatic event. Yes. Yeah. Smell is actually one of the things that's most closely connected to past experiences because smell mm-hmm. actually bypasses the thalamus. So it can easily get connected to, to memory. that's why when you smell something, you're like, oh, I smell cookies. I feel like I'm in my grandmother's yeah. house and she's baking. Um, I love that, by the way. That's yeah. the best when you smell something and it yeah. brings up good memory. It's yeah. so like peaceful. But for some people, their, their flashbacks, so to speak, flashbacks yeah. are not just visual images. And sometimes that's a, a misconception about PTSD. Mm. But you can have an emotional flashback. So so you might smell like maybe smell the cologne of your attacker and all of a sudden you're having a panic attack and you have no idea what just happened. Right. So a lot of people I work with, they're like, there was no identifiable trigger to my panic. And then we talk about it. Well, what happened? And and I'll ask them, was there a smell? Was there a sound? And we create an awareness around that. So like, oh, that's what it was. Because yeah. you just you those panics, those flashbacks are associations, right? That smell is connected with this emotion. So what fires together, wires together. Yes. And that must be such an aha moment for the client because for them, they're like, this panic attack came out of nowhere. I can't relate any cause. But as yeah. they do the work in therapy, yeah. they are able to unpack this connection. So they yeah. may not be able to do that without therapy or someone right. guiding them on how right. to make these connections. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so um, relieving for so many clients to see like, oh, it's it's something that like therapy helps us establish control over our own emotions. And it's so many people have anxiety because they think they can't control their emotions. But when you bring awareness to it and you understand the neurology behind it, it's like, oh, now I get it. Yes. Yes. So how many sessions, and I'm sure it varies, how long do you think it takes? Let's say someone's starting to engage um, to treat their sexual trauma, right? How long till they start to feel some 
progress and then feel like they can end treatment? What does that look like? So it's like my favorite question because it gets asked so much. And my answer is is always the same. I have no idea. It varies. (laughs) Every single client is different. So for a single incident trauma, meaning it's a one-time thing that's happened, usually the general rule is eight to 12 sessions, you'll, you'll be noticing a difference. You'll start seeing that things are shifting and things are moving. In my experience, and this is just my experience, I'm not saying this is everybody, I have never worked with a client that has had a single incident trauma. Because more often than not, if you develop PTSD, it's because earlier things have happened in your life that have given you a predisposition to develop PTSD, whether that's childhood Mm -hmm. trauma and stuff. Not always the case. I have heard plenty of stories of people who have, you know, eight to 12 sessions and they were totally perfect. Um, Right. But it's it's so hard to say. So when someone calls me for the first time, asks about, you know, therapy for trauma, I'll say, you know, during the first couple of sessions where we focus on history taking, after those, I will have a better idea for you of how long this is going to take. Right. That and, makes sense. You need yeah. to understand what's going on first before you can predict that. Right. And the biggest thing that leads to successful outcomes is the buy-in. And with the buy-in comes, you know, practicing the things that we do in therapy. So if I'm giving you homework, I need you to practice these things at home because that's how you're going to get results. It's learning new behaviors, doing new interventions and techniques that actually help you to feel differently. So that's what's going to lead to things happening faster. Yeah. 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 But you know, I feel like people ask and I get that a lot too, like how long will your, will this take for right. you know me to feel better or to be done with therapy? Because good therapy has a price tag. You yeah, know what I mean? Absolutely. So people, some people have to pay out of pocket for it. Um, some people then submit at a network health and benefits to their health insurance provider, mm-hmm. but it can be costly. So people kind of want a general idea of how much they're investing Absolutely. in this process. Yeah. And um, I think that's a, like, I love that you bring up that point because it's something that is so um, not talked about as well. I did like a whole post yeah. on like, why is therapy expensive? And right. just explaining all about that because it is, let's, let's be honest about the conversation. It's, it is expensive. What I often tell clients is, yes, you're spending more money in the, like, uh, in the front load, but my philosophy is I don't believe in keeping people in therapy lifelong. So yes, you're spending more money now up front, but it's because we're trying to get you moving faster and doing more, more work so that you won't need me in the long run. And to change your life, like people spend money on crazy things. Right. It's so hard for them to put in time and invest in changing their life. Exactly. Isn't it? It's a matter of priorities. It's, you know, how much does your own health and wellness mean to you? Yes. And I see, I tell my premarital couples um, when this comes up, like therapy, like premarital therapy is going to cost less than your future divorce. (laughs) Yes, that is, I love that. That's so true. Your divorce is going to follow you the rest of your life, especially yeah. if you and end that's up expensive. <laughs> so invest now to prevent that. I love that. That's awesome. 
(laughs) Yeah, because it is, you know, people do have to invest in treatment at times, you know, not everyone takes health insurance um, that provides therapy, especially with specialties, right? Right. And it's true, like, that's kind of what I, I tell, like, clients who have trauma is, Yes, it's more expensive up front, but think if trauma untreated can manifest in so many ways, including medical conditions, you know, the resiliency documentary shows like with the ACEs study, untreated trauma can lead to heart disease. So how much are we really saving on medical bills and insurance if we're actually like treating the whole person? Great point. Great point. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, besides the shame that some people feel, is there anything else that comes up that you think makes survivors resistant to seek help for for their trauma? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it can be, shame is a really big factor. Um, For some people, it's guilt. There's so many different emotions that can get connected to an experience. So it could be like a lot of clients that I deal with are stuck on this, um, belief system of I'm not good enough mm-hmm. and can create a lot of sadness or a lot of lack of motivation. Um, so that, you know, and a lot of that too can come from yeah. earlier childhood stuff, but yeah, the shame is a big thing that's connected to sexual assault. Like why, especially for clients who experience the freeze response, which is right. a lot of what we do in the beginning is the psychoeducation of actually your brain had a totally normal response to trauma that it's not always fight or flight. Some people are, why did I, why didn't I say no? Why didn't I run away? Why didn't I fight back? Well, because your brain froze and that's what the brain does to protect us from pain and something bad happening to us. Definitely. Definitely. And I talk about fight or flight all the time with Mm -hmm. my clients that I treat with anxiety. And so there's a lot of overlap there. You know, there's a lot of anxiety involved. Absolutely. Yeah. So, EMDR. Yes. How do you break it down a little bit further for someone to visualize what that looks like? Yeah. So EMDR, as I said, it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. No one's going to have to remember that. It's a lot of vowels. Yeah. <laughs> like it's a lot. Um, even yeah. sometimes when I type it, I'm like, oh God, so many letters. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. But basically it's based, it's an evidence-based psychotherapy. That Mm -hmm. is based on kind of the left brain, right brain approach. So, you know, the left brain controls the right side of your body. The right brain controls the left side of your body. And when trauma gets stored incorrectly in our brains, it's like I said, at the frontal part of our brain. So in order to use our whole brain to reprocess and relearn, we have to use bilateral movement. So whether that's eye movements, we're shifting our eyes left and right or we're using tactile stim. Like if we're in the office, um, I have my little buzzers, I call them. So they vibrate in, in your hands one at a time. Some people like the auditory where there's tones that go in a headphone, like beep, beep, left and right. But what that does is that it, it highlights your whole brain and it actually gets you, it activates the memory network. So you're able to bring all the parts of the memory and I really shouldn't even say memory, I should say reliving because it hasn't been stored as a memory yet, but it brings all the parts of the incident to kind of the forefront. We want to activate a little so we could feel the feelings and the emotions and the thoughts that happened at the time of the trauma. And that bilateral movement helps us to make those connections so that we can relearn it. 
I love how biologically based this is. Yes, it's 100% evidence-based. It's been researched time and time again. It was founded by Francine Shapiro. um, And it's funny how she kind of discovered it. She was just feeling upset one day. And she's in San Francisco and she was just watching the cars on the Golden Gate Bridge and noticing all of a sudden she was feeling better. And she noticed her eyes were moving left and right fascinating and that's that's how it all started that's how the research started which is so cool that is so cool to observe something like that in yourself and discover it yeah that's awesome dina have you ever watched the showtime series the affair no but i heard emdr was on it someone told me that yes yeah (laughs) love that show and maybe during like quarantine times you will find yes i can check it out yeah (laughs) check it out and Towards the end of the series, one of um, the characters starts to learn how to do EMDR. And I was so, so excited. Cool. Was oh, like, my God. I have to check that out. Yeah. I was like, yes. Now it's like mainstream. There's a TV show actually showing EMDR it's, Yeah. It's definitely becoming uh, more and more popular, um, which is great. Like, we want more awareness about it. It also is very not tricky to use, but there has to be a lot of what I've found in, in my experience is we have to have a lot of awareness of dissociation because it works hand in hand with EMDR. Because like I said, if we start reprocessing too early things and we're, things are not getting better, there might be a dissociation factor at play and we need to figure out what that is. And can you explain what dissociation is for anyone listening that may yeah. not know? Yeah. So dissociation is like, as I explained before, is like the freeze response. So yeah. during a time of a trauma, your body can fight, flight or freeze Um, And when that happens, it's, you know, we kind of either disconnect from our body or we disconnect from reality. Mm -hmm. And what, once we dissociate, we can actually continue to dissociate even after the trauma has stopped. So if we bring up and when we start talking about the trauma, all of a sudden the client can start dissociating because it's, you know, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together. So this incident is paired with dissociation. So we actually first have to work on toning down the dissociation and helping clients be in what we call dual awareness. So right. being aware to of of the the trauma of the incident that happened, but also aware of our presence in the room. So I call it like one foot in the memory, one foot in my office. And only when we're able to do that, only when we can maintain dual attention is EMDR successful. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Pretty so cool. this has been the model that really helps people recover, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. And like anything else, like it's, you know, EMDR is an amazing therapy. It's my specialty, but some people don't like it and that's okay. There's so many, there's trauma-focused CBT, there's cognitive processing therapy, there's, you know, there's other things. There's too. options. There's options. Um, I find that EMDR is most effective, especially when other treatments haven't worked. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. No, that's good to know. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So before we head to wrap up, what would you want survivors of sexual assault to know or just take with them today after yeah. listening to this? That's a great question. Um, the most important thing I think to take away is that it's perfectly okay to get help. Yeah. And it's good to bring all of your attention to this with a trained professional. Because like I said, if we work on things without the right um, supports in place, things can get worse, not better. 
Yeah, real slappy, I'm sure. Yeah, so it's really, but, you know, it's so okay to get help and it wasn't your fault, right? That's like, I feel myself repeating that all the time. There's nothing you did to cause this. You didn't invite this. You didn't ask this person to touch you. So, you know, that's that's super important for people to know. Yeah, get rid of that responsibility. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Dina. So how can people find you and what kind of services are you offering right now? Yeah. So we're all of my entire practice is virtual right now. So EMBR thankfully is it can be done virtually. Um, So I'm still, you know, working as are Lauren and Stephanie, our other therapists that work at the, at the center. Um, So right now we're all virtual, but uh, anyone can find us by going to peacefullivingmentalhealthcounseling.com. You know, it's kind of a long (laughs) URL, Um, but side note, Peaceful Living is actually named after my dad. That's why it's so long, um, because those are his initials, Philip Lewis Coretta. So that's kind of the little backstory behind the name of the practice. Yeah. So Peaceful Living mentalhealthcounseling.com is where we are. Our office is in Scarsdale. We're right uh, by Route 22. We're kind of on the border of Scarsdale, East Chester. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and since you're are. virtual, you can really see anyone in New York State, right? Yeah. Yes. So you don't have to be local in Westchester to meet with Dana. Exactly. You could be anywhere in New York State. And I'm also licensed in Connecticut as well. So New York and oh, Connecticut for me. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. Just trying to, you know, Go all over the globe. (laughs) One state at a time. One state at a time. I've got 48 to go. (laughs) go. By the time you retire, you'll have it all. Yeah. (laughs) So I'll definitely include some of that information in my episode, my show notes here. Awesome. 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 Well, thank you, Dana. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Of course. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed listening to the information shared during this episode. Please consider subscribing so you can stay updated when new episodes are released. And don't forget to check out the podcast show notes to find any resources that were mentioned in today's conversation. Thank you for listening and enjoy all the moments your day has to offer you.